Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. The word of the Lord says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked man of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for just the work that your spirit is at work here in New City, Lord. It's, 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 I'm grateful to see your work, to see how you are using this body to serve this community. Father, and uh, like many of us here today and myself included, Lord, we long for uh, this week to be together as a body to worship corporately, Father. And as we've uh, shouted our praises and given our gratitude to you, now we want to hear you speak to us from your word, Father. I pray that you would use Ryan in a powerful way that, Lord, the, as we leave this place today, we would fall in love with you in a greater way, that your spirit would begin to work even now as you use your servant. Lord, I pray that you control his thoughts, his emotions, and that we could see Christ exalted and glorified as he speaks to us. Lord, if there's any one of us today, Lord, as the prophet says, as we hear your word May our hearts not be hardened, Lord. We want to be challenged. We want to be embraced as a body by you and see your spirit at work in this word, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going through a series that we're calling As You Go, and it's through the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15 today. And if, you're, if you've not been tracking with us, I just want to catch you up to where we're at. Paul uh, is an apostle commissioned by Jesus, sent out by Jesus, empowered with the Holy Spirit. And uh, he's been 
taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. You know, there was this promise in Acts 1.8 that said the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. You'll proclaim the work that I've done among you, but you won't just do it here in Jerusalem, you'll do it in Judea and Samaria and, and to the ends of the earth. And so Paul is carrying that out with some companions to the ends of the earth. And, and last week we looked at how they were in the city of Philippi, which was in Macedonia, and they'd received this, just this... Um, miraculous call to not go up north to Asia, but to go further west uh, into, into Macedonia, into the city of Philippi. And, and upon getting there, uh, the Holy Spirit just begins saving people, redeeming people through the proclaimed Word of God. And we've said that there's, there's kind of a pattern that we see when we proclaim the Gospel. We said that it, it starts with proclamation, but then immediately opposition comes up. <laughs> people don't like what they hear. Some people do, some people don't. That's the common theme that we see. But then there's this necessity for perseverance. And then upon persevering, there's fruit that's born. And we, we've said that we have this, this issue that, that, that we have sometimes is we don't endure through the opposition. And so oftentimes we don't see the fruit. But Paul and his companions have continued pressing on. They've, they, had to, they, had to, they were beaten and put in prison. The, the, the prison guard gets saved as they're miraculously delivered. They go out of that city. And then they go further on into Macedonia. And they end up in this city called Thessalonica. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but in the Scriptures, there, there's the book of Acts, which kind of th- tells the narrative of the church. And then there are all these epistles or letters. Um, epistles like uh, the, the letter to the Philippians. The letter to the church in Thessalonica. The letter to the church in Colossae. And on and on and on. And we could really take those letters and kind of put them in line with the book of Acts. The Acts is the narrative. Those letters are happening uh, as Paul is visiting those different cities. Now, we come across this verse, these two verses in Acts 17. If you've got a Bible, open it up. Um, we'll look at verses 6 and 7. And really, there's a lot of things we could say about Acts 17, but I just feel specifically drawn to these two verses today for us to unpack this. And the Scriptures say this, These men have turned the world upside down and they have come here also. What a compliment. Am I right? They've turned it upside down. And Jason has received him and they're acting against Caesar saying that there's another king, Jesus. There's another king in our midst. Church, the big idea of where we're going today is this. Upside down hearts turn the world upside down. Let me say it again. Upside down hearts Turn the world upside down. Now, in order to understand this and really believe this, you gotta, you've got to really see that the world is wrong side up. And what I mean by that is things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. You know, we see the individual sins that take place and burden us, and we're, we're victims of some of those, we're perpetrators of others. We see the corrupt structures of oppression that don't give everyone the same opportunities for life and dignity. We see all of these things that happen. The world is wrong side up. And Jesus has come to turn it upside down. But the first place that he wants to start is in our hearts. Now, I want to tell you a story about a man named Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was a preacher's kid. But he was a preacher's kid that went off the deep end. When he went to college at Brown University, he... uh, he, 
he, he had this roommate that, that convinced him that Jesus was not the only way and that Jesus actually wasn't involved in the everyday, ordinary lives of Christians through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, he convinced him instead that God was, that he was distant, that he wasn't near, that he wasn't close. So he became a deist when he was in school. Now, can you imagine that the heartbreak that his parents felt? Now, some of you in this room have felt that same heartbreak, but the promises of God are stronger. Judson, he gets out of college and, and, uh, and he's, he decides that he wants to travel the world, and so I don't, I don't know how he's affording to do that, but somehow he's traveling, right? And, uh, and, and there was this, he was in this hotel one night, and there was this man that was next to him in the room, and he was crying out in agony all night long. And it became clear to Judson pretty quickly that this guy wasn't going to make it through the night. And so Adoniram Judson is just, he is just heartbroken. And he's wondering, he's inquiring in his mind what is going on with this guy. And, and if, if there was anything to do that I, that, to help him, I would do it. He doesn't sleep all night long. The next morning he gets up and he asks the innkeeper, the, the, the person that's running the hotel, he says, hey, what happened to that guy? And the, the, guy says, the, the innkeeper says, hey, you know, he died. And he says, um, what's his name and where was he from? He said, well, he, he went to, to, to Brown University. It was called Providence College then. Um, and his name was such and such. And, it, and it, hearing that, Adoniram immediately broke and he began, to, he began to weep. Why? That was the guy that convinced him to be a deist. That was the guy that told him to leave Jesus. And so Adoniram begins questioning everything that he's thought about. And so he begins to pray and ask God back into his heart. Jesus never left him. He loved Jesus. He asked for that nearness of presence and he went back home and he began to pray with some of his friends in a hayfield. They began to pray for the loss in, in Massachusetts where they were living and they began to pray for the loss in the world. And there in that hayfield was the first foreign mission agency is where it was formed. Now, Judson then got married to this, this lady named Ann. It, that was known as the Haystack Revival, by the way, if you look it up in history. Judson then got married to this lady named Ann. And seven days after they got married, they set sail for India. They were going to be the first foreign missionaries to come out of the United States of America. And on arriving in India, they were not permitted to enter India. It was, it was something that was happening with the East India Trading Company, and they were not permitted to come into the country of India. And so they tried many, many times, and they, they couldn't get in, but all of a sudden the Lord opened this door for them to go further east to Burma. And so they enter into Burma, and they begin laboring for the Lord there, and it is this long, hard work, because in Burma there's no Christians at this time. There's none at all. And so, you know, several years into that, they have a child. The child only lives to be eight months old, and it passes away. They experience tremendous heartache and then there's this glimmer of hope six six years church after they've been laboring in Burma six years two and a half years longer than we've been in existence as a church six years later they see their first convert six years and after they see their first convert they, they this thing just begins to blow up in Burma they spend 38 years there he's imprisoned by the time Adoniram, he dies at around the age of 62. By the time that he dies, they do the census afterward, and there's over 200,000 
Christians in Burma. 200,000. If you know anything about the Burmese people, I've lived in Indianapolis and now in Atlanta, and the Burmese people are coming to the United States. They're, they're immigrating here. And guess what? Most all of them are Christians. Across the street from my house is a, is a Burmese family that follows Jesus. And, and I was wondering when they moved in what, what all these cars were doing outside of their house. And I, I asked one of the guys, he says, oh, we're here for a missions conference. God uses very ordinary people to turn the world upside down. And He does it over a length of time when the people of God decide to be faithful to the ways of God. So what's an upside down heart look like? I'm glad you asked. Open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. Jesus, He tells this parable. He says, Jesus says this, What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went into the vineyard and worked. And he went to the other son and he said the same thing. He answered, I go, sir. But the guy didn't go into the vineyard and worked. And then Jesus asked this question. He's he's talking to the the religious leaders of the days, the, the Pharisees here. And he says, which of the two do you think did the will of his father? Which one was it? Was, was it the guy that, that said, I'm going to do it, uh, and didn't do it? Or was it the guy that said he wasn't going to do it and actually did it? Which, which one of the guys did the will of the Lord? And, 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 and Jesus says, and they say this, the first, and Jesus said to them, truly, he's agreeing with them, I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Guys, you... The collective impact of what that would have sounded like in that day, it's hard to find a comparison in our culture today. The the people that you think are absolutely the worst are the people that are going into the kingdom of God before you is what Jesus is saying. And why are they going into the kingdom of God before you? Because they believed in what Jesus said and they followed Him and they changed their minds and their hearts changed and their lives changed and the world began to change because they actually believed what Jesus said. These people are broken and messed up and really need Jesus. You know, most people uh, think they really don't sin. And if they think they sin, they don't really think they need Jesus to help them. You know, our, even, even when I look at our kids, and i got to be careful about sharing stories about my kids, by the way, because they're kind of getting older and they're kind of like, hey, Dad, you can't do that anymore. It's not cool. And so one of our kids, um, one of our kids, you know, struggles with an area where it's like, you know, I'm not a sinner. I didn't do that. Other one of our kids, I'm like, you know, why did you tie your brother up in the bathroom and lock the door? And he'd respond by saying, you know, I can't help it, Dad. I'm a sinner. It's like, <laughs> like what am I going to do with that? You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah, you're right. You know, let me teach you to walk in repentance now. But yeah, um, Jesus invites you and me to another way of living. A, a way, guys, where where brokenness is the foundation of receiving the power of God to have an upside-down heart that's able to turn the world upside down. Think about some of the things that Jesus says in His ministry. I'm just going to share a few of them with you. This this idea of an upside-down heart. All these paradoxes. To be found, you must first be lost. To lead, you've got to follow first. To be comforted, oh, you've got to mourn. To be satisfied, you got to live hungry. To see the kingdom, 
you must suffer. To become wise, you've got to first become fools. To become strong, you've got to live weak. To see, you've got to know you're blind. To receive, you've got to believe it's better to actually give. To be free, you've got to first become a slave. To conquer, you've got to yield. To reign, you've got to serve. To live, you've got to die. These are all paradoxes. These are all things that don't make sense to you unless the Holy Spirit has turned your heart and your life upside down. And the people that are readier to receive these truths are often different than the people we think should deserve to receive these truths. And that's why Jesus says, hey guys, by the way, sinners and tax collectors, prostitutes, they're going to go into the kingdom before you because they are desperate for another way to live. These qualities are all about dependence. And there's only one way to describe the person who's Jesus, Jesus is really turned upside down. And that's desperately dependent upon God to fulfill their every need, to satisfy their deepest longings. And that's the person that has the opportunity to have an upside down heart. Where are you with that today? Do you come to God in your strength or in your weakness? 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 has been kind of a life verse for me, which talks about this idea. Paul's asking God to take away the thorn that he has in his flesh. Take away this glaring weakness that everyone can see. This, this place where everyone can see that I'm not as put together as I want to be. And, and what does Jesus say to him? Hey, Paul, I'm not taking it away, bro, because my power is made perfect in weakness. And trust me, you want the perfect power of Jesus to reign in and through your life. And so you've got to be content with weakness because that is where Jesus displays his perfect righteousness and strength through your life. That is a heart that has been turned upside down. This is what was happening to Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke who were on this journey and the Holy Spirit had spoken to them and they went to Macedonia, they went to Philippi, and now they're in Thessalonica. So now let's look at how upside down hearts turn the world upside down. What do they do? What are they about? They're about a few things. The first one is this. Upside down hearts turn the world upside down through the leadership of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, a lot of times we get freaked out when we talk about the Holy Spirit, and we've already been talking about it a lot this morning. We've been singing about the person and work of the Holy Spirit this morning because guess what? As Francis Chan said a long time ago, he's the forgotten God. We don't like to talk about him because it kind of freaks us out because we've had these experiences with people that have different spiritual gifts than us. And we've had these, these things that people said that they had this word of the Lord and it didn't come true and they got hurt by the situation and all this stuff. But guys, you cannot throw out the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one that helps you see who God is and what his word is. And he magnifies the person and work of Jesus in our lives, all the days of our lives. He carries us to completion. That's what these guys would have known and been living out. Jesus says in, in, in uh, Matthew 28, 18-20, it's this, this, this verse called the Great Commission. I think, I think there's kind of a great omission in the midst of this, though. And the Great Commission says, hey, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then the work of the Holy Spirit is tacked onto the back of the end of this. Oh, by the way, don't forget how all this is going to be possible. I'm with you always to the end of the age. I have to imagine that Paul and his companions would keep coming back to that over and over again because they would, when they were getting stripped and beat and thrown in that Philippian jail, didn't seem like Jesus was with them, did it? Wouldn't to me. 
then he comes and he gives this promise in Acts 1.8. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There was this underlying assumption in all the work that they did that the Holy Spirit was the one that was actually doing the work. Because as, the, as, uh, as Luke wrote about in, in Acts chapter 4, about Peter and John when they got up and they stand, stood in front of the Sanhedrin and they preached the word with power, the thing that really struck the Sanhedrin was what? It wasn't that these guys were like amazing. It was that they were ordinary, unschooled men. There was nothing special about them. They were just like you and me. In fact, most of you are probably more impressive than they were, if I must say myself. But what, what, what really struck the Sanhedrin when that happened? It was that they had been with Jesus. That's what matters about your life. The, the, either you've been with Jesus or you haven't been with Him. If, you're with, if you've been with Jesus and the Holy Spirit is applying the work of Jesus to your life as you walk out your life in this day-to-day living, this grind of everyday ordinary life, God does extraordinary things through people's hearts who have been turned upside down. We don't get to determine the times and the seasons of when those things happen, but when the Holy Spirit is, direct, is, is directing and guiding your life, He's turning the world upside down. You may never see the fruit, but He's turning the world upside down. Second thing is this. There's a confidence in the Word of God. So through the leadership of the Holy Spirit is one. That's how God turns the world upside down. Second, through a confidence in the Word. Now what you notice in Acts chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, and Acts chapter 17, verses 11 and 12 is this. It says this. The first one in in verses 3 and 4 is when Paul is in the city of Thessalonica. Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And saying this, Jesus, this Jesus I proclaim to you is the Christ. Likewise, when he got to Berea after he'd been thrown out of Thessalonica, says the scriptures say this, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What was Paul doing when he got into a city? He was making a beeline for Jesus. How can I get these people as quickly as I can to the Word of God? Now, when we said the Word of God, it wasn't that he was, he was whipping out his personal version of the ESV out of his robe and laying it down at Panera with a group of guys. It's not what was happening. The Word was written on his heart. He didn't have these personalized scrolls that he would whip out and roll out and say, hey guys, check this out. Now, the synagogue would have had some scrolls, but the Word was living inside of him. Sharper than a double-edged sword, as Paul would say in other places. The, the Word was with him. It was inside of him. Now, now, he started with this fact that it's necessary for you guys to acknowledge the, the person and work of Jesus. Now, why, why was it so necessary? Well, Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He, he says this, why, why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Jesus had to die is what He came in telling these guys. 
Hey, Jesus is not your co-pilot, okay? Get that sticker off of your horse. He's not your co-pilot. He's the pilot of the thing. He's the, the whole thing. You're along for the ride with him. Jesus is driving this whole thing. Without Jesus, Paul said, you're under a curse. The same curse that, that, that was given after disobedience in the garden, we're under that curse which ultimately ends in death apart from God. You're under a curse without Jesus. The only way that we're relieved from that responsibility to endure the curse through death is through someone giving themselves for us. Jesus, the, one who, the only one who's ever actually been blessed because He never sinned, became a curse for us. He took your curse so that you could live blessed. You could live with the favor of God upon your life. And therefore, God isn't mad at you anymore. God, isn't, God doesn't hate you. God loves His children. He poured out everything that He had against sin on Jesus. And the question is, do you receive Him? Or are you just like those guys that Jesus talks about in that parable where he says, you know, some of you say that you believe and you don't really follow, and then others of you say you don't want to follow, but then you actually end up following. Which, where, do you, where do you land with that? Everything but God's Word is quicksand, church. Everything is. Every other word that competes against God's Word that says you can just pull yourself up, you can just get it together, just stay strong on your own. It's all quicksand. It will all fall to the ground. It won't last. The only thing that lasts is the Word of God. And so for us, church, if we want to see the Word turned upside down, we've got to take heed of the prophecy that Ezekiel wrote about in Ezekiel chapter 3 when the Lord came to him. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1-3. through 3. Ezekiel says this, And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Now, now what was going on with Ezekiel in this day? Well, the Israelites were in Babylonian captivity. They had forgotten the ways of God, and, and we see this history of Israel where they, they kind of go in and out of God's favor because of their disobedience. And this was Ezekiel urging them to repent. Now, how does he tell them that you've got to repent? Well, the first thing God does is he begins to turn Ezekiel's world upside down. He says, eat this scroll, and then you'll have something to say, Ezekiel. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. And so physically speaking, I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. Now this is why I'm not, don't, don't be chewing on your ESP right there, okay? So just, not yet. So I, so I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat and he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was sweet in my mouth as honey. This is a picture of what God intends to give us through his word. He intends to give us the way of blessing as we read about how Jesus has become a curse for us. He begins to give us new life as we see that there's a different way to live than the way that we came out of the womb living. He shows us a different way. So, so, but, 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 but our issue is we get so tentative with God's Word. I don't want to offend anyone. or you know, I, I don't really know the Word that well. How can I talk? What if people have questions? And so what we, what we, what we do, it's, it's almost like, if you, have you ever been to a foreign country before? Anybody? You've been to a foreign country. Maybe some of those are third world countries, maybe. I remember we, our church went on a, uh, has gone on a few mission trips, and uh, on one of those, it was like everybody got a tapeworm or something. Like, it was like really bad. It was, it was, it was, it was, 
It was not great. And so everything that they were eating, they were like super tentative. Were, the missionaries were like, no, this is a safe place. They're like, mm -mm, I'm not eating, I'm good. You know, so everybody came back, you know, 15 pounds lighter after their week in Honduras. But they were tentative to eat the food. I think sometimes we do that with God's word. We're tentative to take it in ourselves because Jesus might turn our world upside down if we take it seriously. And then he might do something through us when he turns upside down our world. And so we're tentative as we approach God's word and we don't really eat it with confidence. We don't really consume and absorb and internalize the word of God with confidence. And so we live this double life of, yeah, it might be true with Jesus, but what about this other thing over here? God doesn't turn the world upside down through tentative people. He turns the world upside down with people who are confident in the Word of God. And so one of the greatest joys of mine is to hear a bunch of covenant partners stand up here and say, hey, these guys are trying to stand on the Word. They mess it up and they botch it. And you, you know me and you know our staff team. Uh, we botch it a lot. And you guys are super gracious, by the way. But we want to stand on the Word of God because it's the only thing that's going to last. So we're going to preach it, we're going to sing it, we're going to live it, we're going to share it, because it's the only thing that'll last. It's the only thing that we could give Lawrenceville that would last longer than us. So we do this through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, with confidence in the Word of God, as the family of God. As the family of God. You know, you guys know me, um, in large part, I'm what, what you might call disconnected from the interwebs, all right? I've kind of gone off the grid with social media and all that kind of stuff, and um, I, I'm not saying all you guys have to do that, but I did, I did darken the doors of Twitter this week, and I happened to read a tweet by Lady Gaga. Now, I don't follow her. I just happened to see a tweet by Lady Gaga, okay? Don't judge. Don't hate. And she was talking about uh, this tweet. She was talking about one of her friends that, that uh, started a music video with her, and, and it was a guy that has, like, you know, he has, all, he has a lot of tattoos of, of kind of dark images all over his body. And... Um, his name was uh, Rick Janest, and, and they called him Zombie Boy. Uh, and uh, and he, he, he took his life this last week. He was 34. And, uh, and what she said after that really struck me. She said, we have to work harder to change the culture. And, uh, and she, she talked about mental illness, but then she, then she said this, if you are suffering, call a friend or family today. The last thing she said, we must save each other. We must save each other. Now, this, this tweet hits at the edges of what everyone in this room feels. We want to be known, yet we feel isolated. We want to be strong, yet we feel weak. We want to be, we want to be loved, but all we feel is hate. Jesus turns all of this upside down because he meets you exactly where you're at, not where you hope to be. That's how he turns your world upside down. Is he, he meets the felt need that you actually feel, not just what you share with other people. He meets you exactly where you're at. And, and, and in, this, in these scriptures here, we see what's happening in the city of Thessalonica is something deeper than just this narrative of how the church grew. It was this connectivity, this family of God that was being birthed everywhere the gospel went and the Holy Spirit proceeded. This family was being birthed. And we, we read about it in Acts 17 where we see Jason standing up and taking one for the team when they couldn't find Paul and Silas. He says, sure, take me. They, they probably beat him and they take his money. And then we see the, the, the Thessalonica church taking care of Paul and the apostles because they're so concerned about the gospel. They're, they'd love for Paul to stay, but they need to keep sending him forward. 
And then we see in this, this letter from 1 Thessalonians where Paul is writing about his memory and his longing for that church that he only spent a couple months in. Okay? Maybe a little bit more, but he didn't spend much time there in Thessalonica. And he writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17-20. through 20. Here's how he talks about this church. How these people of God. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short term, for a short time in person and not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And he says, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown, our boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. He said, you know, who cares about how many people I preach to? Who cares about how much Scripture I know and, and how much I've suffered? You're my crown and my joy. These people that he's discipled and he's led to Jesus and he's shared life with, they were his family. I was at a pool party yesterday with my kids. I'm sitting next to this 72-year-old man who's just moved here from out of state and, um, and he really misses his family back home and he's probably going to go back to New York. And, and he says, you know, my family, my, my physical family's here and I love them, but there's just something about a family that's knit together through the Holy Spirit. There's just, there's just something about the family of God that's different. And, and if you've never stepped in to, to, to being vulnerable among God's people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, that doesn't make sense to you yet. But church, this is a place where we said at all costs we're going to live as the family of God. We're, we're not going to choose to be buttoned up and put together because that's not real life. That's TV. That's Hollywood. This isn't Hollywood. This is Lawrenceville. We're going to be real. And guess what? The real Jesus meets us where we're really at. And so Paul was living with this idea of the family of God that shaped absolutely everything that he did. So, so the question for you as we, as we uh, wrap this up today is this. Do you want to turn the world upside down? And You do. You do. We all want our lives to count for something. We want it to count for more than what we can see. More than how long we'll live. We want to make impact for generations upon generations. Church, let Jesus turn your heart upside down. Come to Him in your brokenness. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you what? More work? No, I'll give you rest. The world is just saying, I'll give you more work. I'll give you more to do. Here's your to-do list today. Here's how you can look better. Here's how you can make more money. Here's how you can do X, Y, Z. Jesus says, come to me. Guess what I'm going to give you? Rest, because it is finished. I'm doing all the work for you. I have done it. I will do it. I will finish you. Come to me where you really are. Not with some future, pretend, better version of who you are. Come to me where you really are. And let me turn your world upside down. And you, you go and tell. You go and be a witness of how I've turned your world upside down. And guess what I'll begin to do with you? It may be six years before you ever see a convert. But I might turn the world upside down through your family. You decide to get serious about Jesus. Church, he's saying, come. Come all who are weary laden, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. We'll pray for us. Um, we'll pray that God will turn the world upside down through this little church in Lawrenceville. Let's pray. Father, we, we give thanks. We give thanks for your word and for the power that it has in our hearts, through the power that it has in our lives, through the power that you give to us through weakness. That's your promise. And so, Lord, 
uh, we confess this morning that we are not put together, that there are things about our lives that we are absolutely embarrassed of and want to hide. We want to hide uh, from our friends, we want to hide from our church, we want to hide from our family. But Jesus, you have come to give us hope, not in the darkness, but in the light. So God, would you give us a heart to be in the light as you are in the light? Only bad things grow in the darkness, but your light exposes our hearts. And what we find at the end of the day is that you never left us. You never left us. You never left us through that embarrassing stage of life we were in. You never left us through that grievous sin that we committed. You never left us when we hurt the people we love the most deeply. You never left us. So Father, would you draw hearts this morning? Would you turn our world upside down? And Jesus, through our pursuit of you, by the power of your presence with us through the Holy Spirit, would you slowly but surely turn this world upside down? We pray all this through the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.